This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. John chapter 14. Last Sunday, we began a brand new series on the Holy Spirit. It's called Life in the Spirit. So what we're going to be doing this spring and summer, we're going to be looking at some of the primary texts in the New Testament about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to, to do life, daily life, in the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit? So we're going to look at John 14 today, some of the the deepest, most beautiful teaching of Jesus on the Holy Spirit is found in John 14, 15, 16, 17. And so this week, and at least next week, we're going to be in John seeing what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. This takes place the night before Jesus goes to the cross when he could have taught about anything he wanted to teach about. But that night... Jesus devoted large, a large portion of his teaching to the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to talk about our helper for life today. John 14, and let's begin with verse 12, if you would follow along in your copy of God's Word. What, is, what does Jesus say here about the Holy Spirit the night before he goes to the cross? Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your Spirit now you would help us to understand the, your word that we've just read and that by your Spirit you would enable us to put it into our living. We thank you that we don't have to do life alone anymore, that we can do life with you, that you are with us, that you are in us. And we pray that you would teach us today by your Spirit more of what that means. And we pray that you would help us to be changed by knowing that. 
and that would profoundly influence the way that we do life. Help us to do it in the Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first few weeks, I'm a baseball fan, as many of you know, and the first few weeks of the baseball season, there's been a lot of fighting in MLB. And uh, a lot of the fights go back to bean balls. You're not into baseball. The bean ball is when the pitcher intentionally tries to hit a batter, okay, with the ball. Uh, causes problems. And there's been one pitcher, he plays for Kansas City, and he's been at the center of several of these altercations. And he's just a little guy. I mean, he's, uh, he's like, you know, maybe 140 pounds, thin little guy, but throws really hard. And he stares batters down and sometimes throws at batters. And you're thinking, I mean, these guys that he's trying to hit with the ball could break him in half. You know, what is he thinking about, this little guy? Well, here's the deal. This guy has a catcher who's a huge, big, strong, burly guy. And so whenever this pitcher gets himself in trouble, when people are mad at him, you see this catcher and he'll stand up and he'll kind of get between his pitcher and trouble. This guy is bold because he knows, he knows he has a big, strong helper um, by his side. Well, as Christians, we have a big, strong helper too. And our helper is not to... Uh, he enables us to be bold, not to intimidate people, but to love people. And to live for God. And um, last week, as we began this series, we went back to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. We went back to the baptism of Jesus. And we saw there the interaction of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we we sort of in laying the foundation for the series, we saw that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Today we're going to sort of fast forward from a scene toward the beginning of the ministry of Jesus to a scene that takes place toward the end. It's the night before Jesus faces the cross, and he's pouring truth into his disciples. And he devotes a large part of that teaching to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is some of the most beautiful teachings, some of the deepest teaching of Jesus is found in these chapters of John. But I want you to think about the emotions of his disciples on that night. There's a sense of dread. There's a sense of foreboding. Jesus, at the end of chapter 13, has just told them, look, I'm, I'm going away. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Where I'm going, you cannot follow. And so they are filled with fear and anxiety and uncertainty. Jesus says at the beginning of chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. But why does he say that? He says that because their hearts are troubled. Deeply troubled. And so on this night, what they need is reassurance. And Jesus in this text is seeking to reassure them that even though he's not going to be physically present with them any longer, that something's going to happen and it's going to be even greater than his physical presence. The Spirit is going to come. 
And because of that, even greater things are going to be enabled. I mean, have you ever thought, if only Jesus was here, now life would be so much easier. You know, if he was just walking among us today. Well, think about that, though. You know, Jesus was physically present for three years with his disciples. You know, lived with them. Uh, He was with them most all the time. But think about the way that they were during that three-year period. I mean, when you read the Gospels, uh, you see that they were... They were often very slow to get spiritual truth. You see that they were often sort of petty in their treatment of one another. And I mean, on this very night, despite what Jesus says here, on this very night, before the end of the night, they're all going to flee like cowards. The deep transformation in their lives happened after the resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. There's another thing we need to understand, and and that is that Jesus is present with us. In fact, he's not only present with us, he's, he's with us, he's in us, he's present with us in a way that's even greater than his physical presence would be, and it enables greater things. So what, what greater things are enabled because the Spirit has come. First of all, Jesus talks about greater works. The coming of the Spirit has enabled greater works. So Jesus says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Now think about the shock that they must have felt when he said that. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. I mean, look at what they've seen him do. But then he, if that wasn't enough, look at what he says next. And greater works than these will he do. And then Jesus says something that was really counterintuitive. He says, because I'm going to the Father. <laughs> You're going to do greater works than you've seen me do because I'm going to the Father? Jesus, what do you mean? It's because of the Spirit. It's because the Spirit is coming And the Spirit is going to enable greater works than than my physical uh, presence. Now, this proved to be absolutely true in the opening weeks of the early church. After Pentecost, after the Spirit comes, just in the first few weeks of the early church, more people came to faith in Christ than had come uh, in the entire three-year uh, ministry of Jesus while he had been physically present with them. And not only that, but throughout the book of Acts, by the end of Acts, the gospel has penetrated throughout the Mediterranean world, even into the capital of the Roman Empire itself, Rome, and, and into the very household of Caesar, the Roman emperor. Now, how does this happen? I mean, think about what the disciples were like before the resurrection, before the pouring out of the Spirit. They're slow to get it. They're often petty towards one another. They're, they're, they run like cowards the night that Jesus is betrayed. These same people, after the resurrection, Jesus spends 40 days with them, appears to them, talks with them, 
Jesus ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and these same people that were so timid, so fearful, so fleeing like cowards, hiding out behind locked doors, these same people are standing and proclaiming with incredible boldness the good news of the gospel at the risk of their lives, and most of them were going to end up giving their lives, dying like martyrs for what they were proclaiming. How does this happen? Furthermore, think about what, what's happening as they proclaim this message. What happens when they proclaim the gospel? All over the world, I mean, people's hearts are being strangely warmed. They, are, they find themselves believing this news and being transformed by this news. So what was the news that they were proclaiming? Was it sort of, sort of a nice, a feel-good message, you know, that was going to have just broad appeal in their culture? I mean, think about what these early Christians were proclaiming. They were, they were telling Jewish people, and at this point, all the early, earliest followers of Jesus, they were all Jewish themselves, but they were telling their fellow Jews, um, look, the Messiah... Um, who we expected to come and kick out the Romans, the Messiah was actually crucified by the Romans. Didn't kick them out. He was crucified by them, and he rose from the dead. And by the way, God is commanding us to repent just like Gentiles. Think about what they're saying to Gentiles. You know, they're saying to Gentiles that a crucified Jew that was uh, killed under Pilate in Jerusalem, this crucified Jew is actually, he actually rose from the dead and he's Lord of the world and you owe him your allegiance. He's actually, Caesar is not Lord, actually Jesus is Lord and you're commanded to repent and turn to him. This is their message. If you were going to sit down and invent a message in the first century, okay, that was going to have appeal. This is not what you would come up with, which is a great evidence for its truth. You know, this was a message that on, its, on the face of it was deeply offensive to Jews and laughable to pagans, to, uh, to, to Gentiles, to Greeks. But yet... As it was proclaimed, what was happening? It was happening in cities throughout the, 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 the Mediterranean world in the first century. What was happening was that as this news was proclaimed, people were believing and lives were being totally transformed. How do you explain that? Apart from the Holy Spirit empowering this good news. The Holy Spirit inhabits the gospel. And as the gospel is proclaimed, the Spirit works in the hearts of people to draw them, to open their eyes, to see the truth, and the Spirit enables them to believe. There is no explanation for what happened in the first century apart from this. You know, Paul says that 
in 1 Corinthians 1. It says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You say, well, why isn't this happening in America today? Well, I mean, actually it is happening. Every time that a person believes in Jesus, they didn't do that on their own. It's the Holy Spirit opening their heart and enabling them to believe so, yes, it is happening here, and there are parts of the world where it is happening today on a book of Acts type of scale. I think it would be happening more here if we share the gospel more. Because as we, as we speak of Jesus, it's not just us speaking to another person. It's the Holy Spirit that speaks as well. Okay, we're just vehicles, right? We're just called to be witnesses. We can't save anybody. It's the Holy Spirit that works in people's hearts and opens the eyes of their hearts and enables them to believe. Now, certainly, I mean, there are people like me and you know, pastors who, who proclaim the gospel, but most of the people that need to hear it aren't here. They're not in any church today. They're out there in the world. They're out there in your world. Okay, You're moving among them every day. And in order to speak of Jesus, it doesn't take anything unnatural or weird. You know, it's simply a matter of living a life of love and not hiding who you are. And you'll have plenty of opportunities to speak of Jesus. And as you do, understand, it's not just you and having a conversation with another person. Okay, the Holy Spirit empowers the gospel and, and opens the eyes of hearts and enables people to believe now, that's what was happening in the first century. That's what happens when people come to Christ today. Now, there's something else that we need to see. Not only is the Holy Spirit unleashed as the gospel is proclaimed, but also the Spirit is unleashed as we pray in response to our prayers. Verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, Whatever you ask... In my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. To pray in the name of Jesus does not mean tacking the words in Jesus' name to the end of our prayer. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray things that are consistent with who He is. Things that are consistent with His character. That's what his name represents. Now, we see this even in our culture today to a degree. When we talk about that somebody has a good name, what do we mean? We mean, you know, they have good reputation. They're known to be a person of good character. So even today, our name, a, a name is associated to a degree with character. In the first century, much more so. Much more so. So what Jesus is saying here is that to pray in my name means that you're praying for things that are consistent with who I am. Now, as we do that, we need to bear in mind a couple of things. And if we understand these things, it will transform the way that we pray. We will pray with far more boldness if we understand these things. First of all, to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. Understand this. The Father loves the Son. 
He honors the Son. He glorifies the Son. He denies nothing to the Son. And here's the other thing. When you pray in the name of Jesus, the Father treats that prayer as if it's coming from Jesus Himself. Because Jesus is interceding for us as we pray. Paul says in Romans 8, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Edmund Clowney taught at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia for many years. And he tells about something that happened when he himself was a student at Westminster he had a, an issue in his life, and so he went in to talk to one of his professors, uh, Dr. John Murray. And he went in and he shared this private matter with Dr. Murray. And Dr. Murray said, Ed, let's pray together. And so they prayed, and Ed Clowney said that as Dr. Murray prayed, he said that room was just filled with the Holy Presence of God. And as he prayed, he said, I just, I just sensed God in his nearness and his tender love and his transcendence and his sovereignty. And I was just able to rest. I was just able to, to, to rest in who God is and just overwhelmed with a sense of peace as Dr. Murray interceded for me. And, and he said later on, he said, I got to thinking about what happened in Dr. Murray's office. And he thought, you know, if, if Dr. Murray's interceding for me, you know, had this kind of transforming effect, how, how, how much more should we be transformed in praying and knowing that as we pray, Jesus Himself is interceding for us? You know, so the Spirit enables greater works in the sense that He empowers the gospel, in the sense that He is empowering our prayers. Greater works. Second, Jesus talks about a greater obedience. By the way, when we think about uh, praying again, um, don't water down what Jesus says here at the end of verse, at, at verse 14. Jesus says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Don't water that down. You know, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, once said this, Thou, when you pray, Newton says, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such none could ever ask too much. So the Spirit enables greater works. Second, greater obedience. Now, later on in the series, when we, we look at the epistles, we're going to talk about how, how the Spirit works in our sanctification, our growth in Christ, how the Spirit uh, enables us to deal with temptation and things like that. But... We want to look more briefly today at something that Jesus says here in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, in verse 21, Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who 
loves me. Jesus is not saying here, if you love me, then obey me. He's not saying, if you love me, then obey me. He's saying, if you love me, you will obey me. (laughs) What drives obedience to God is love for God. What drives obedience to God is love for God. So the issue in our lives is how can our love for God be increased? If our love for God is increased, then our obedience is going to be increased. How is love for God increased? Look at what Paul says in Romans 5.5. He says, hope does not put us to shame because what? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, as we do things like dig into God's Word, study the Word in small groups or in larger groups like this one, okay, understand the Scripture is inspired by what? The Spirit. So the Bible is not just like any other book. There's a power there that's not in any other book. That's because ultimately God is its author. And so when you, as you study the Word, the Spirit is working in your heart, increasing your love for God. As you take advantage of other means of grace, you know, like doing relationships with other believers, um, prayer, as you seek to do ministry, as you seek to serve and do good in the lives of other people, you experience the Spirit working in you and through you. Through all those things, the Spirit is working in your life and pouring more of God's love into you. And so your love for God is growing and therefore your obedience to God is growing. Now, this is why... Augustine once said this. He said, love God and do whatever you please. (laughs) For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. Uh, Augustine says, love God and do whatever you want. (laughs) Because if you love Him, you're not going to want to do anything to disobey Him. I mean, quite the opposite. The more that you love Him, the more that you want to do that which pleases Him. Okay, and so obedience flows from love. And love is poured into our hearts, Paul says, through the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit enables not only greater works, but greater obedience. Third, the Spirit enables greater companionship with God. Let's look at what Jesus says here in verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper. The Greek word is parakletos. And it's a very rich word. It can be translated in several different ways. And we're going to talk about some of those ways in a few minutes. But before we talk about who the Spirit is, let's clarify who the Holy Spirit is not. First of all, the Holy Spirit is not an it. 
What does Jesus say in verse 17? The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is God, the third person of the Trinity. Second, the Spirit is not an impersonal force. You know, I love Star Wars, uh, and one of the, the themes that winds its way through Star Wars is the whole concept of the force, and, and maybe the most famous line in Star Wars is, may the force be with you. But the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity. You can have a relationship with Him. He is not an impersonal force. Now, I mean, even to hear many Christians talk, I mean, you would almost think this about the Holy Spirit, that He's some sort of an impersonal force. I mean, you know, some Christians talk about you know, well, if, if you just do this, this, and this, okay, um, check off this block, go through this checklist, you know, check, 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 you know, push this button, then you're going to have the Holy Spirit in His fullness. You know, three easy, quick, three quick and easy steps to the fullness and power of the Spirit. It, it, they talk about Him almost as if He is an impersonal force that can be manipulated. Jesus says that's not the case with the Spirit. Jesus says, and he tells Nicodemus in John 3, the Spirit is like the wind. You know, he blows, like the wind blows wherever it will. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force to be manipulated. The Holy Spirit is a person who loves you. He loves you. You can have a relationship with Him. And we see his love for us, even in the word that Jesus uses here. It can be translated as it is here in the ESV as helper. So that means that you don't have to do life alone anymore. You don't have to do life alone. The the Holy Spirit is with you. He's in you. He is your, your helper. He's coming alongside a lot of times you see this word translated as the comforter. The Holy Spirit is your comforter. You know, when you go through difficult times, painful times, as we all do in a broken, fallen world like the one that we live in, you don't have to go through those times alone. And sometimes you see Christians going through something so dark so painful, tragic. And you, you know, you ever watch sometimes you see Christians who are going through times like that, but yet through it all, I mean, they've got this, there's a sense of peace. There's a sense of, they almost have a glow about them. I mean, they're able to laugh. You know, they're able to even minister to other people through, through what they're going through. How does that happen? That's the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've even been through times like that in your own life, and you look back at that period of your life, and you think, how did I even get through that? 
I mean, how did I, how did I even get up in the morning and put one foot in front of the other? It was the Holy Spirit that enabled you to do that, the, the comforter. Another way that this word can be translated is counselor. So the Holy Spirit not only empowers us for life, but he guides us through life. And just like the Israelites, when they, were, when they were set free from slavery in Egypt, okay, what did God do? They came out of Egypt, they've been delivered from slavery, they haven't yet reached the promised land, they're in the wilderness, but what does God do? He sends them a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night to guide them. So, we have been delivered, we've been saved from slavery to sin. We're on our way to the promised land, but we're not there yet. We're kind of in this wilderness time. There's a pillar of fire. It's a pillar of cloud to guide us. It's our counselor. That's a spirit. Another way that you could translate this word is advocate. The Holy Spirit is our advocate. Now, that word was very common in the legal world in the first century. It was, it was a, a legal term that was used to describe one who stands in a court of law and pleads a case on behalf of another. Now, it's very interesting because in, in 1 John 2.1, Jesus himself is described as our advocate. 1 John 2.1 John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. When an advocate, even in today's world, stands in in a court of law and, and pleads a case on behalf of someone, he or she does that on the basis of law. Jesus, John says, is our advocate before the Father. Before the Father, Jesus says, you know, look at my broken body. Look at my shed blood. Okay? This this person is in me. They've, they've turned to me. They're resting in my finished work for them. Father, look at my broken body. Look at my shed blood. I fulfilled your law perfectly for them. And I paid their sin debt on the cross. And therefore, they are acquitted you know, because they're in me. Okay, so... Jesus is our advocate before the Father in heaven. But now, Jesus says in, in verse uh, 16, Jesus says, I'm going to send another advocate. Okay? Jesus calls the Holy Spirit an advocate. See, just like Jesus is our advocate before the Father in heaven, the Holy Spirit is our, our advocate here on earth. Because as Christians, we're not condemned anymore. I mean, we, we know that, okay? Because of the work of Christ, 
We're not condemned before the Father. Jesus is our advocate. But sometimes our hearts condemn us, right? And we, we, we're filled with doubt when that happens. We, we, doubt that, you know, we, we doubt that we're actually saved. We doubt that we're actually children of God. And when that happens, the Bible, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to come alongside and he's going to advocate and he's going to reassure you of who you really are. Now this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 8 when he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't have the kind of assurance that Jesus is seeking to give in this text. I would pray that your Spirit would open the eyes of their hearts to see the work of Christ and to turn to Jesus and trust in him alone. We pray that as believers that we would walk with more of an awareness of the fact that we're not doing life alone. We have a helper. We have a comforter. We have a counselor. We have an advocate. Um, we're not meant to live the Christian life in our own strength. Not meant to do it alone. You promise to be with us and in us. Help us to rejoice in that and just live through that. Father, I pray for anyone here today that just came in needing that word of hope and encouragement that, that you, by the power of the Spirit, would, would speak to them right now and turn their gaze toward you and enable them to rest and rejoice in who you are. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're here today and you'd like to talk with someone about more about what a relationship with God is all about, uh, we would love to do that um, with you. If you're um, here and you say, you know, I want to be uh, a part of this church family, we'd love to talk with you more about that. If, if there's a need in your life for prayer and you just want to pray with someone, um, we're here to do that. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.